Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO, it is March 2019, and I am uh, here today with Rob Schultz. Hi, Rob. Hi, Zach. So today we have a really cool conversation, and the the kind of the framework for this, I think, is is how ECMO changes all of our paradigms in cardiac arrest. I mean, we think about uh, you know downtimes, right? I mean, if you asked me ten years ago if you said someone that had a chest compressions for an hour if they would be able to neurologically survive, I'd be like, no way, that's just that's just not possible. But now we see that that is possible, and not only is it possible, but you know, it can be a lot of people. In Dimitri's case series, almost 50% of those people survive neurologically. And so I think we, we sort of push the limits of what we understand as the boundaries of humanity, of the human body. And today, this conversation is all about that. So Rob, let me, let me have you introduce yourself. Who, tell me exactly who you are and where you're from. Uh, yeah, so I'm, my name is Rob Schultz, and uh, I'm a cardiac surgery resident from the University of Calgary, and currently I'm doing a master's in translational medicine at uh, the University of California, San Francisco, and Berkeley. Uh, and basically that's in uh, commercialization and development of medical devices, so getting things from the bench to the bedside. Super cool. So cardiothoracic surgeon from Calgary, now doing some research. And tell me about what you're doing right now. Uh, so right now, uh, one of the side projects we have going on is essentially stemmed from an idea that we called Brain ECMO or BRECMO. Uh, and now what we're trying to do is use uh, central venous catheters as uh, an easy access point to cool the brain using a technique called retrograde cerebral perfusion, which is used classically in uh, the cardiac OR. So I think that's the place that we should probably start here. When you have someone that you do a circ arrest surgery on, can you walk us through? Because I think most of us are not completely familiar with everything that goes on in the operating room. Yeah. So, I mean, when we do a circ arrest, uh, you know, there's a few ways of doing it. One is straight deep hypothermic uh, circulatory arrest where you cool the patient really cold between like 12 and 20 degrees Celsius. Uh, and then uh, another is doing that in combination with retrograde cerebral perfusion. Uh, which buys you about another 30 minutes uh, of circulatory arrest time uh, before you start to get cerebral edema. And then the other uh, approach, the third approach, is um, selective anterograde cerebral perfusion. So in that case, we're putting catheters in all the head vessels, the brachiocephalic, the carotid, um, the left subclavian, sometimes one of those or a combination of those, uh, or even the right auxiliary artery. Uh, to perfuse the brain anti-grade from the pump. So all of them involve making the brain cold, uh, and some of them involve either perfusing the brain backwards from veins to arteries, or they involve perfusing the brain the way we normally do, anti-grade from arteries to veins. And so you're taking normal, healthy, not healthy, but you know, relatively healthy, neurologically intact people, and they are volunteering to go and have this procedure done. Tell me, what, what, first of all, what type of procedures are you doing in, in these circ arrest cases? What are you doing to the heart? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, 
it's more focused on the aorta uh, and, you know, we're stopping the heart uh, as we normally do with uh, cardioplegia. But really, you know, it's more that we're, we got to stop the heart. And then we also have to, unlike normal cardiac surgery, where we can keep perfusing the body through, you know, our fancy uh, pump, we can't perfuse the brain at that point uh, using traditional methods. So we have to get creative. And one of the best ways to keep the brain alive and getting creative is, is cooling the patient, cooling the brain. Uh, and so the surgeries we'd be doing would be, you know, um, aortic arch replacement um, or a really, you know, big ascending aorta uh, replacement that goes up to the brachiocephalic where, you know, you feel you can't uh, get enough access or neuroprotection. Got it. And then what what is the chance of neurologic devastation or stroke or ischemia or something as a result of these elective surgeries or semi-elective surgeries? Yeah. So, I mean, if they're elective, you know, depending on uh, what center you're at uh, and who you're reading and the technique they use, it can be as low as, you know, a 3% stroke rate, which is, you know, it sounds uh, terrifying, but when you compare that with cardiac arrest, uh, you know, which can be as high as a third uh, of the survivors having neurologic disability, 3% is uh, quite an improvement. So is this a fair statement? A patient who has an aortic arch problem goes into the operating room. We take their temperature down to something very cold, somewhere between 12 and 20 degrees. We leave them without any perfusion to their head for 30 minutes, and they have a 3% chance of having neurologic devastation or neurologic deficits after they wake up. Yeah, that's a that's a very fair approximation. We we like to keep our circuit rest times below twenty minutes, uh, but uh, yeah, that I'd say that's fair to say. And so these patients are waking up, you know, as they as they were before, um, living their lives as they were before. So I think even that statement, those statements alone, are are paradigm shifts. I mean, I think most of us don't really like kind of grasp that concept that someone could have no perfusion to their brain for 20 minutes as long as we have them cold before this happens and still have a relatively i mean 97 percent chance of having neurologically intact that's that's pretty impressive yeah yeah i think it's very impressive it's uh, one of the things that turned me on to cardiac surgery in the first place just uh it's phenomenal what uh, what we can do Okay, so now you're going to take this and you're going to try and apply this to a different subset of patients, cardiac arrest patients. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So there's obviously a disparity there. You know, if you, you know, we can do circulatory arrest in the OR for 20 minutes, no problem. And you wake up and your brain's fine. But uh, even if you're on the other side of the wall in the ICU, if you arrest for 20 minutes, you've got a really good chance of waking up and having brain damage if you wake up at all. And so we're trying to bridge that gap and take that technology and technique and bring it sort of to the rest of the hospital so that, you know, if you have a cardiac arrest anywhere else in the hospital, then your chances of having brain damage uh, or brain death would be the same as they would be, you know, in the cardiac OR or more similar to that. And so we see this, the, the discrepancy here in neurologic survivorship in these two cases as probably mostly related to the fact that they did not they were not cooled when they had their arrest. Yeah, yeah, that's fair to say. And so you could argue that the closest thing we have to this are the pre-hospital, you know, normal saline boluses that have cold chilled iced uh, saline to try and create hypothermia as soon as possible and those have been less than than enticing. 
Yeah, so the results from those trials have been less than than ideal um, in favor of um, intracardiac arrest cooling. Um, I would just caution that with those studies when we're looking at them, you know, they're, we're only getting as cold as, you know, about 34 degrees Celsius, um, which no no surgeon would really do in the cardiac OR. So it's not, it's not truly intracardiac arrest cooling. And then if you look at the time it takes to get down to 34 Celsius, it's kind of happening within a window of about an hour. So it's, it's more sort of um, preemptive post-cardiac arrest cooling is how I sort of view uh, that technique. And as well, I mean, you're cooling the arm and, you know, the, the lungs and the whole body as opposed to just targetedly cooling the brain. Okay, so not the right place, not fast enough, and not cold enough. Yeah. And so your hypothesis or kind of idea here is is how do we do this better? Yeah, exactly. So how do we um, get vascular access so we can be fast enough? How do we make it easy enough um, so that whoever's there in the hospital first can start this so that it doesn't have to, you know, you don't have to be calling necessarily an ECMO team or a cardiac surgery team or, you know, having ECMO capable people in the ED. It could be anyone who's there at the arrest first. Uh, and then we need to get it cold enough. Um, and we need to sustain that cold for a long enough time that, you know, we can make some more decisions on whether the patient, you know, needs to go to the ICU, or maybe this is a bridge to ECMO, or maybe they need to go to the cath lab or the OR. Maybe there's some sort of intervention, or maybe it's just something as simple as, you know, they need their potassium shifted and we just need to buy a little bit of time. So in the operating room, you, you sort of mentioned something already where they, you will sometimes perfuse the brain backwards. That seems like a, like a crazy concept. How, what's going on with that? Yeah, so it was a technique that was originally made to treat air embolism in the brain. So uh, unfortunately, sometimes on pump, you get uh, an air embolus that will go through the line and up to the brain through the arterial side. Uh, and so in the 80s, uh, they came up with this technique of retrograde cerebral perfusion to push blood backwards through the other way uh, to try and get the air out. Uh, and then it became uh, popularized uh, probably in the 90s, I'd say, um, with using that in conjunction with deep hypothermic uh, circulatory arrest. And so the technique is you put a cannula in the superior vena cava and you hook that up to the pump. This is all after the patient's been cooled. Uh, and then you run cool blood through it. Um, and interestingly enough, we know that it works. So deep hypothermic circulatory rest usually will get you about 30 minutes. Adding uh, retrograde cerebral perfusion will get you about 60 minutes of more or less safer rest time. And so we know it works. But when there's a, when we label um, albumin with technetium, uh, it's shown that not all the albumin and by virtue, we think red blood cells are actually getting back to the arterial side. Uh, so there's sort of a disconnect. We, you know, we used to think that, um, oh yeah, we're we're perfusing the brain backwards with you know oxygenated blood, and so that's why we're getting this bonus 30 minutes. Um, but really now the theories are more um, one, we're getting more homogeneous cooling of the brain, and then two, uh, you know, we're flushing out some of the microemboli and things like that, um, that could be, uh, lodging themselves in the arteries of the brain. And so basically what it comes down to is it just provides better cooling than not doing it. Hmm. I mean, that is just such a, a, a cool concept to be able to, 
to because I actually think that as well. When we were putting someone on ECMO, it's you know it's a crash procedure, eCPR. We're putting these cannulas in, and then all of a sudden we shoot all this this blood backwards up the aorta of patients who probably have calcium deposits that have been sort of sitting there loose for a while and what's actually going up to the brain. So if you could perfuse it backwards and you could cool it more homogeneously, then that just theoretically seems advantageous. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we we think we've seen benefits from that in, uh, in cardiac surgery for sure, especially aortic surgery. Yeah. So, I mean, imagine a scenario where, say, you know, you are not available uh, to put someone on ECMO, um, but they've got a central venous line in, uh, you know, maybe they're somewhere else in the hospital, but, uh, you know, they've got one of these central lines in that can cool their brain and run cold fluid uh, backwards through their brain to cool their brain that could be immediately deployed. Um, So the team there does that. um, And then you know that you've got 20 or 30 minutes before they start becoming brain damaged where you can get them on ECMO or you can start your eCPR or get them to a cath lab or an OR or, you know, just reverse their potassium depending on what it might be. So just sort of imagine that that patient going down and then, you know, starting CPR, getting the brain cooled and just the breathing time that that would allow the team to do what they need to do to either be a bridge to ECMO or to, you know, further treatment or decision. For sure. Um, so how yeah. fast, like if you, let's say you had one of these catheters and like you're in the OR, everything's ideal. How fast can you get someone to, what would you say, 20 degrees is what we need? 15 degrees? How fast can I get the brain to it? Yeah, so so in the OR, we try to go slow, uh, no more than one degree a minute. Um, and we try not to have a difference of 10 degrees between the pump heater cooler blood and the patient's blood just to avoid air coming out of the blood. So we, we do take our time. So maybe that's not the best approximation, but I've done this in two pigs so far, uh, and we can cool by 10 degrees within 10 minutes. So we can get down to 28 degrees from 38 degrees within 10 minutes, um, you know, which we feel significant uh, for protection uh, in, in cardiac arrest. Okay. So we've got some we've got some logistical issues I see here. So we've got the problem of creating some air as a result of too quickly cooling. We have the problem of ten minutes still seems like a, a bit of time uh, to get them down to the right temperature. So when you're doing this circ arrest, you actually cool them well before you actually put them into arrest. Yeah, in some circumstances, you know, it's not necessarily an idea deal perfect translation to cardiac arrest because uh-huh. yeah we pull them for sometimes up to 30 minutes even um just to be certain if it's going to be a longer case we'll cool for 30 minutes uh, to make sure that we've got um good brain protection okay so wait let me let me just make sure i get my my hands around this so you've got a catheter in you're about to do the surgery you blow up the catheter so now you've got no venous blood going in, back into the heart you perfuse the brain retrograde with cold solution, but they're still, their heart is still beating naturally, so you have this kind of confluence of two different pressures, opposite directions. You do this at one degree per minute, is what you said? Yeah, no, so, the, so in the case of retrograde cerebral perfusion, mm-hmm. uh, what we do back is we take uh, the patient, put them on pump as we normally would, mm-hmm. and then cool their entire body. Okay. Um, and that's surgeon dependent. 
um, but it'd be between 12 and 20 degrees if you're doing retrograde cerebral perfusion. Mm. Now, once you stop the heart, they're still on pump, and you're still you still got that cooling, and you sort of set everything up so that your circuit time is going to be as low as possible. Mm. And then once you're ready to do circulatory arrest, um, you will have placed a cannula in the superior vena cava uh, and tied it off with cable tape. And then when you're ready to do that, you the heart stopped, and you put them on retrograde cerebral perfusion at that point. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. And these details, I'm yeah. sure, are like they're super fascinating to me, and I bet a lot of the listeners as well. But let's let's take a little bit. I want to just get more of the broad picture here. So, if you had a, a an ideal temperature to have someone at post or during their cardiac arrest, what temperature would you set it at? Yeah, if I could set the the thermometer, I'd set it between twelve and twenty degrees. Okay. Um, now, I think that's a bit um, irrealistic for us. Based on what we have from anti-grade cerebral perfusion, uh, we've noticed that if you do have some anti-grade cerebral perfusion, you can go warmer than the traditional 12 to 20 degrees. And so I think, you know, with the technique that we're describing, we can probably get them down to 28 degrees. Now, if it were totally up to me, I'd try to get them between 20 and 28 degrees. There's still a little bit of anti-grade cerebral perfusion we're getting from CPR, uh, which is great because we know we can do a little bit warmer uh, if we've got that anti-grade cerebral flow. So between 20, so to answer your question directly, it'd be, you know, if I could set the thermometer, it'd be at, you know, between 20 and 28 degrees, which is the classification of moderate uh, hypothermia. Hmm. Okay, so, so much here, and we could we could unpack so much. I want to ask you one, one last kind of broad topic here. How does this relate to what Sam Tisherman is doing in trauma, where he's you know, exsanguinating people, putting 40 liters of cold saline in, and then uh, trying to restore their, their circulatory status after a traumatic injury. Yeah, so there is some correlation between what, what they're doing and sort of, you know, what we already know from deep hypothermic cardiac arrest. And actually, we're basing some of our pig trials off of some dots, you know, that were done in Pittsburgh on, you know, exsanguinating and then refilling uh, for that suspension or, uh, you know, just taking taking the body and, and putting it into it to, into suspended animation, uh, if you want to call it that. So I, I think there's definitely a correlation. The caution that I would take there is that uh, you know that's either a cardiac arrest or a hemorrhagic event where there's not enough blood, and so there is a bit of a difference between you know trauma. We're usually seeing bleeding, and if there is an arrest, it's from you know hemorrhage. Uh, versus other in-hospital cardiac arrest, you know, which would normally be a, a medical cause. Um, and so we're not looking at necessarily cooling the entire body because I don't think the I don't think the whole body becomes ischemic as much as it would in in a in a hemorrhagic situation as it does in cardiac arrest. I hope yeah. that answers your question. No, no, I totally agree with you. I think I mean there's so many cool questions that surround this, but yeah, it, it's kind of like maybe we're actually deleteriously cooling the body. Meaning maybe the heart doesn't do better if you cool it. The, the organs don't do better. Maybe the only really thing you need to cool is the brain. And having something like what you're suggesting, a catheter that can retrograde cool it very fast, would uh, would be ideal. And I actually, you know, I once saw a Korean like abstract, which I have not been able to find since, which had something like this, where they were doing some regional perfusion of the brain to try and cool it. But that, to me, uh, I think 
makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. That's that's good to hear. (laughs) Um, We do know that if we don't cool um, the body, because since anti-grade cerebral perfusion, selective anti-grade cerebral perfusion has been around, people have been experimenting with keeping the brain one temperature and keeping the body another temperature. We do know that if about after an hour, if we don't keep, um, you know, 30 minutes to an hour, if we don't keep the rest of the body cool, uh, we do start to see some nerve um, issues uh, and you can get paraplegia mm. um, if you're not keeping those nerves cold. So I think the work uh, that, that Sam Tishman's doing uh, is really great because you're going to get that cooling of those those spinal nerves mm. um, lower down, which, you know, I, I'm uncertain as to whether CPR gives you adequate perfusion uh, to those nerves mm. at times when we're doing resuscitations over an hour to an hour and a half, it's really hard to tease out whether that's, um, you know, central uh, or more peripheral nervous cause. Yeah, very cool stuff. I mean, I was actually just also thinking about if you could actually segregate the brain from the body, so you could cool the brain, and then you could actually use your epi that you want to give to, uh, to get ROSC and not have the effects on the brain, if you could, if you could totally separate the two entities. Yeah, so you might be able to, if you get cold enough, there's a decoupling of basically the ability of the blood vessels to constrict and autoregulate. Um, and so below about 20 degrees, you basically get uh, what's called a luxury perfusion. And so the blood vessels of the brain are just sort of opened up uh, and don't uh, have a myogenic response uh, and don't autoregulate. So you get an increase of cerebral blood flow uh, if you cool to below 20 degrees. Yeah. Um, so you could, in theory, get that if you cooled to below 20 degrees and, uh, you know, still wanted to give your epi, you could do it in that situation. Such good stuff, Rob. All right. Uh, any last thoughts or things that we missed? No, I think we, we've mostly covered it all, Zach. I just, uh, yeah, I think it's really promising uh, that, you know, other people are doing work in, in sort of getting the body and the brain cold and trauma. Uh, and that, you know, people like yourself are doing, you know, eCPR and, and doing this show. And it, it kind of, it, I'm hoping that we can continue to push the field forward. Uh, and I think neuroprotection is probably, uh, the next frontier of CPR and, and cardiac arrest resuscitation. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I can't wait to see what, sh- what your, uh, next steps are going to be. All right. So Rob Schultz, CT surgeon. University of Calgary, and now uh, in San Francisco. We can't wait to hear more from you. Thanks for being on the show today. All right, thanks so much for having me, Zach. Really appreciate it. All right, from ECMO, this is Zach Shiner, March 2019. See you next month.